Um, I'm reading from Jonah chapter 1 and 2, which is 9 to 7 in the Blue Bibles. Um, okay. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the, tar- and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below the deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble trouble for us? What, What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord, because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should, we do to make, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O oh Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man for you, O Lord, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. And at this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Chapter 2. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave I called for help. And you listened to my cry. You hurdled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents whirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath me, beneath carried me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Well, let's take our seats, and it might be good just to turn to the passage that uh, Katie read for us, Jonah. And we're looking particularly at chapter 2 this morning. 
And the story of of Jonah uh, is a very relevant story, uh, relevant to us, uh, because the story of Jonah is about a believer who goes astray. And we all know what that is like. It's about a believer who goes astray. And we all know what that's like. Jonah was a man of God, uh, but a man of God who'd gone wrong. We have to remember this. He was a prophet. Jonah was a very successful prophet. He'd had a successful ministry in the past. And then he received a call uh, to go to a place he didn't want to go to and to do a job that he didn't want to do. And uh, he turned his back on God and went the other way. And that's how the uh, book of Jonah starts, is that the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh, and Jonah says, no, I'm going to go completely the opposite direction. And Jonah was a man who was running away from the Lord. He actually, uh, actually says that in verse 10 of chapter 1. Uh, they knew he was running away from the Lord. Uh, Jonah had actually uh, told the sailors on the boat that that's what he was doing. And uh, here we find Jonah is a man who's facing the consequences of that running away from the Lord, that disobedience. And he's in the midst of a raging storm, and it's come upon him because of his rebellion. And again, that's uh, very clearly stated in chapter 1, second half of verse 12. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon us. So look, Jonah is a mature believer, a man of God, but in his life he's gone astray and he's now facing ruin. Certain ruin. And then, as a result of what happens in chapter 2, Jonah is a man now who is saved. He experiences a real and great salvation. He is snatched, you might say, from the very jaws of death, seemingly at the very last minute. He's taken out of the storm and he's delivered, at the end of chapter 2, onto dry land. But also look at the transformation that's gone on in Jonah. At the end, at the beginning of the the book, he's upset with God. And here at the end of chapter 2, we find him praising God. And I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. At the beginning, he's running away from God. At the end of chapter 2, He's found ready to obey God. What I have vowed, I will make good. So at the beginning of chapter 2, he's a man who's upset with God. He's running away from God. At the end of chapter 2, he's a man who's praising God. And he's willing to follow God's direction. If such transformation can happen here, we might say, it can happen anywhere. So this this is a passage which is relevant for us. Because if a man like Jonah, so far gone in his rebellion, can be brought back, then there is certain hope for all of us in our rebelliousness and our stubbornness of heart. So look, I've given this morning's message a simple title, From Certain Ruin to Certain Rescue. From Certain Ruin to Certain Rescue. Rescue. And this uh, word, 
comes to us as a church today, as it were, kind of landed in our midst, so that where we as a fellowship are disobedient or stubborn, where we as a fellowship are rebellious, unwilling to do what the Lord asks of us, there's great encouragement here. There is still the promise of certain rescue. Certain rescue. Correction. Redirection. We have to ask ourselves, are we willing to take that redirection? But it also comes to us as individuals. I appreciate that, that as this word comes to us this morning, many of us will sit here and say, what is the Lord saying to me? And it's right to ask that question. Where you and I have, have gone wrong as individuals, maybe we've walked a path that we knew was wrong, we've held on to an attitude that we knew has been damaging, there remains, according to this chapter, a certain offer of certain rescue. It's, it's an encouraging chapter. It's a chapter which is to be good for us this morning, regardless of where we might have gone astray in the past. I think this chapter is a bit like one of those ads that we used to have, maybe still do have on the television, of, of a mum in, 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 in her kitchen, you might say, and she's holding up one of her teenager's rugby shirts, and it's absolutely covered, caked in mud. But at the end of the advert, you see the youngster running off to school, ready to play rugby again, and the shirt is pristine and clean from top to bottom. What has caused the transformation from such filth to such cleanliness? It's kind of wapo washing powder. And it kind of says, look, if it did it there on that shirt, it can do it anywhere. And that's the kind of way we're to read this chapter. Those who, because of their rebellion and disobedience, are facing ruin, can, like Jonah, find certain rescue. He's an extreme case. If it can happen there, it can happen anywhere. So we're just going to look at three things about Jonah in this chapter to try and reinforce that encouragement to us this morning. And firstly, we're going to look about uh, what Jonah was saved from, then we're going to look at what Jonah was saved by. And then finally we're going to see what Jonah was saved for. What was he saved from? What was he saved by? And what was he saved for? So let's look for those three things, maybe even as I just read through the prayer of Jonah. So I'm just going to read again chapter 2 from verse uh, 2 to verse 9. Maybe as we go through those things... You might want to spot those three things. What does that tell us about what Jonah was saved from? What does this passage tell us about what Jonah was saved by? And finally, what does it tell us about what Jonah was saved for? So we read this in chapter 2. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you 
brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. Jonah prays this prayer from inside the great fish. And in his prayer, he recounts his experience in the sea before he is swallowed up. So he prays this prayer from inside the great fish. And in his prayer, he recounts his experience in the sea before he is swallowed up. And as I say, we see these three things. Firstly, what Jonah was saved from. So I wonder when, as we were just reading through that chapter 2, you could see him referring to his experience and what kind of situation he was in, what he was saved from. And of course, he describes something of his physical condition. We get that in verse 3 of this uh, chapter. He says, uh, you hurled me into the deep, the very heart of the sea, the current swirled about me, all your waves and breakers swept over me. He talks about the physical situation. You get that again in verse 5 and following. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down and the earth barred beneath me, barred me in forever. So you get something of the physical condition situation he was in, but you also get something of the emotion. So he talks about his distress. He talks about how he felt threatened by all that was happening. He was terrified. How he felt as if he was at the very end of his life, the depths of the grave, he talks about. I was barred in forever. My life was ebbing away. So not only have you got the physical situation, but you've got his emotion, his terror, his fear, panic, all that is happening to him in the water. But then there's another side to this experience. Because he sees this as something that God has brought upon him. So notice he says in verse 3 that you, talking to God, you hurled me into the deep. Well, actually, it was the sailors who picked him up and threw him overboard. He says, actually, this is all of God's doing that I've ended up here. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the sea. And notice how he talks about the fact that he has been banished from God. You, I've been banished from your sight. It's interesting, uh, Andrew, uh, the new assistant here, was telling me that there's a, 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 the same word that kind of comes three times in this, in this book about going down. It tells us that uh, Jonah went down to Joppa, then went to get on the boat. When he was on the boat, he went down, as it were, into the bottom of the boat, and now he's going down to the bottom of the sea. It's down, down, down. And he feels as if he's completely been banished from God's sight. He talks about his condition, not only physically, emotionally, but he talks about it spiritually. He says, I'm in a godless place. Banished from your sight, I'm in a godless place. Now let's just get the lesson here. This is a mature believer who's gone wrong. The lesson is that even someone who's been a believer for many years can find themselves in a godless place can take a wrong turn. 
And it's led them to some God-forsaken places. Maybe that's been your experience. You've taken a wrong turn somewhere along the line. And you've ended up in some pretty God-forsaken places, going to places you shouldn't have gone, being with people you shouldn't have been with. It doesn't have to just be physical. It can be kind of attitude. Maybe you're aware that there was a certain reaction, a certain stubbornness, unseen by others, but it's led you now to something of a godless place. Your heart is now cold towards God, that you feel in many ways banished from his sight. Jonah's account of his experience is just what we need when we find ourselves in that kind of situation. We've taken a wrong turn and we've wandered away and we feel ourselves spiritually cold and distant as if God is not there. It's a godless place I find myself in. When we know we've gone wrong and we're facing the consequences and we think there's no chance of change in our lives, think Jonah. Think Jonah. Think where he was saved from. And then think what he was saved by. Great encouragement this morning for us. What Jonah was saved from. How extreme was his situation? And the second thing is, what was Jonah saved by? So you may have picked that up as we read it through. You see that in verse 2. Where did he find help? He found help from the Lord. In my distress, verse 2, I called to the Lord. You get it also in verse 4. I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again. What's he looking towards in verse 4? You might want to just read that. It's good that you see that these things come from the Bible and not from my bonds. Where does he look in verse 4? He looks to the holy temple, to the Lord's holy temple. And again in verse 7, when my life was ending away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose where? To you, to your holy temple. So when Job is feeling banished, when he's feeling cut off in this godless place, where does he look? He remembers something about the Lord's character. He looks to the Lord. He knows he's a covenant-making God. That word Lord in capital letters refers to him as a covenant-making God. Made a covenant with God's people. He's looking again to that covenant-making God, a God of love and mercy and compassion. He's looking to the character character of the Lord, and then he remembers what the Lord's provided through his holy temple. What was the holy temple? The temple was a place of sacrifice for sin. It was a place where forgiveness was provided through a sacrifice. It was a place where the unclean could be made clean again through a sacrifice. So what does Jonah think about when he's Facing the very end of his life, because of his rebellion, because of his wandering away, he thinks of the character of God, and he thinks of what God has done. How he's provided a place of forgiveness through sacrifice. We might put it like this. Even in a godless place, Jonah looks to God's place. Even in a godless place, when he feels so abandoned, he looks to God's place. He looks to the holy temple. 
place where God deals with our failings, our rebellion, and our sin through sacrifice. And the great encouragement for us is that we can do the same. God's love and his provision come to that great climax in the gift of the Lord Jesus and his sacrificial death on the cross. Calvary is truly God's place. And wherever we are, or however far gone we are, we must never think that the cross of Calvary has lost its power. It is there for forgiveness. It is there for restoration. It is there to redeem us and bring us back into God's presence. It never loses its power. Some years ago, many of you know I was involved in business up in London. And I remember um, going to a kind of a meeting where there was some uh, guys from various different property management companies there. And I overheard a conversation between two of them. They had actually both been working for the same business, but one of them had decided to leave that company and set up as a, an independent consultant. And he'd done a deal to keep his company calm. But he'd obviously also had to make an arrangement with his previous employer as to when the insurance cover for that car that the firm had paid for was going to finish and when he had to start paying for that insurance cover himself. So let's say they agreed on the 30th of September. Midnight on the 30th of September would be the expiry of his cover with his previous employer. And he would then pay for the insurance cover from the beginning of the 1st of October. And he was telling this ex-colleague of his that at two minutes, two minutes to midnight on the 30th of September, he had smashed up his car. Two minutes to midnight on the 30th of September, he'd smashed up his car. But because it was still the 30th of September, he was able to claim off his employer's previous employer's insurance policy. And it just reminds you that when there's an agreement there, like an insurance policy, and it's set to go right up to midnight on a particular day, it's valid up to the very last second. It was just as valid at two minutes to midnight as it would have been at half past six that morning, or three months earlier, or two weeks into the beginning of that policy. It remained applicable. It remained relevant. It remained, as it were, active right up until the very last minute. As a reminder to us is that God's love has not changed. The offer period, you might say, has not expired. All we need to do is turn to acknowledge our need, to cry, as it says here, to look towards the provision that he has made. The cross of Calvary has not lost its power. It's not past its sell-by date. It's not outside. It's not expired. It's as powerful and as relevant today as it has ever been. So we're to cling to it. We're to look to what God has done for us in Christ for forgiveness and restoration no matter how far we may have wandered away. We're to cling to it. Notice in verse 8 he says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. If we cling to other things, 
thinking somehow or other other things are going to put us right with God and restore us into fellowship with him, we're, we're fools. We will forfeit, we'll miss out on the grace that could be ours. We're to cling to him and what he has done for us in Christ. That's just a warning to us, isn't it, not to be so foolish as to think that anything else can save us. It's interesting, isn't it, that, you know, it's the big fish that comes along, isn't it, and swallows up Jonah. And the big fish does all the work in getting Jonah from the middle of the sea to dry land. Now, Jonah doesn't say to the fish, would you like me to kind of give you a hand? Shall I kind of come on the outside and give you a push and flap my legs in the water and urge you along? He doesn't have to do that. Once he's in the fish, he's safe. The fish does all the work of delivering him to the dry land. And at the end of this prayer, Jonah sums up what he's learned. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. He did it. He picked me up. He did all the work of bringing me to safety, to dry land. So salvation belongs to the Lord. We look there, and it's all done for us in Christ. So salvation doesn't belong to the church, doesn't belong to priests, doesn't belong to ceremonies, it doesn't belong to how much we pray or how much we read the Bible. If we cling to those kind of things, they're worthless things, they're worthless idols. We forfeit the grace that could be ours. It is only the Lord who possesses the salvation we need, so we cling to him. You might even think about it like this. As Jonah was in the fish, and the fish delivered him to safe ground, so we are to be in Christ, trusting only in him and what he's done on the cross, and he will deliver us to safe ground. So that's a great encouragement for us this morning. We might think to ourselves, oh, I don't think... I don't think I can have the capacity to get myself back on track with God. I don't think I can do it. It's not a case of us doing it. It's us acknowledging that we can't do it, but he's done it for us in Christ. So what was Jonah saved from? Terrible situation. What was he saved by? Looking to the Lord and what the Lord had done for him, providing a sacrifice for his sins. We look to Christ. He picks us up, swallows us up, as it were, when we're in him. And he does the work of delivering us to a fresh place of safety. Let's finish by then finally looking at what Jonah was saved for. So just look at the end of, the, of, end of this prayer, verses uh, 8 and 9. Uh, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Now look at this in verse 9. But I with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. I just want us to note, how has Jonah responded to what has happened to him? Well, two responses he refers to. He says he's going to sing. I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice, a sacrifice of praise, a sacrifice of thanksgiving. That's one of the ways he's going to respond. You might say he responds by worship, praising God, acknowledging God's goodness, thanking him, gratitude. That's one of the ways he responds. But the other way he responds is he says, I'm going to fulfill my vows. I'm going to do what you asked of me. I'm going to serve as you asked me to serve. 
So you might say that Jonah's response here at the end is he has a heart of worship and a willingness to serve. Glad hearts, willing lives. That's what our response is to be to salvation in Christ. Glad hearts and willing lives. Just before we finish, I just want us to note the order in which things come in this process. Worship is preceded by salvation. Service is preceded by salvation. Let me just ask this question of you. If there is no desire for worship in our lives, if there's no thanksgiving, if there's no song in our hearts, why might that be? Work the equation backwards. If no worship, no salvation. If there's no worship, there there can't be any salvation. There can't have been any salvation. Same with service. If no service, if no willingness to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, if there's always a resistance to him to do what he asks of us, then do the maths, work it back. If there's no service, there can't be any salvation. can't have been there because it's not producing the service. So there's no, there's no use in us simply saying, I must worship more. I really must try and worship God more. It doesn't work like that. We can't simply come along and say, I must serve more. I really must force myself to do more of the stuff that Jesus wants me to do. It doesn't work like that way. Both of these things come, worship and service, by first of all recognising day after day God's great salvation. What he has done for us in Christ. When we focus on that, the fruit of that is then worship and service. And let me just put it like this. God does not demand our worship and our service in an undeserved way. Rather, he has earned it. God has earned your worship. God has earned your service. I'm just going to put a verse up from Romans 12 where Paul has been speaking at great length about God's grace and salvation in all its many forms. And then he says this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Why should we do that? He gives us the answer. This is your true and proper, you might say, this is your reasonable worship. This is your reasonable response. It's the logical thing to do, to praise God and serve him. Why? Because you've understood something of his mercy. So I'm just saying, just maybe as you sit here this morning, you know that one of the things that's wrong with you is that you have a very cold heart towards God. There's no song of praise there. And actually, you have a very resistant heart towards God. You really don't want to do what he says you should do. What's the answer? Let's put up the next slide, shall we, Pete? We have to remember what we were saved from, what we were saved by, and what we were saved for. Remember where you are, where you've been, 
truth about yourself. Remember what he's done for you in Christ. The great salvation that has picked you from the very gates of death and has brought you to dry ground. Back to him through his love and grace in Christ. And that is what motivates us to be people of worship and of service. It's as we focus on the gospel day by day that our hearts then can be singing hearts and our lives can be serving lives. Well, let's just pause uh, for a minute before we sing our final song. It it is a song which I think is a, a kind of a song in which we promise something to God. But I think maybe we should just pause for a moment before we sing that. Just reflect on some of these things we've learned from this wonderful chapter.